following underwriters. Home Goods of Margaretville, corner of Main and Bridge Streets in Margaretville, New York, now carrying spices, flour, jams, mustards, coffee and tea, organic vegetables and fruits, and local eggs, milk, cheese, and baked goods. And, of course, cooking basics and tools of the trade for everyone at home. Home Goods of Margaretville. Open every day. 845-586-4177 or hgom.net. Pika Moose Restaurant on State Route 28 in Big Indian with farm-to-table cuisine Thursday through Monday. Indoor dining from 4 to 9 p.m. Takeout till 10. Picamoose.com or 845-254-6500. 845-254-6500. The American Forest Foundation, designed to support sustainable forest management, improved wildlife habitat, a healthy environment, the harvest of high-quality timber, and increased carbon storage through the Family Forest Carbon Program. Available to wooded area landowners in the Catskills and throughout New York, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and Vermont. The American Forest Foundation. Details about the Family Forest Carbon Program at FamilyForestCarbon.org. You're listening to WIOX Roxbury, New York. Community radio in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM. Serving Roxbury, Margaretville, Halkettsville, Halkett Center, Hobart, Gilboa, Conesville, Stanford, South Courtright, North Blenheim, Fultonham, Schoharie, Middleburg, Pine Hill, High Mount, Shandaken, Fleischman, Venetia, Jefferson, Huntersville, Wyndham, Watsonville, Meredith, East Meredith, Meridale, Big Indian, Butts Corner, Kelly's Corner, Bovine and Grand Gorge, Andes, Arkville, Drybrook, Break a Beam, Barkaboom, Arena, Prattsville, Downsville, Summit, New Kingston, Denver, Vega, and everywhere else at WIOXradio.org. Listening to WIOX Community Radio Live and Local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM and MTC Cable Channel 20, 107.5 FM on the campus of SUNY Delhi and everywhere at WIOXradio.org on computers 
or smartphones. This is from the forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Talk about a different forest-related topic with Ryan and Zane. Zane, how's it going? Good, good, good. What have you been up to? Uh, I've been in the tree stand more. Um, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, climb up there with a climber tree stand. I'm about up there 20 feet and just uh, getting a view on things. Um, a little bit nerve-wracking, but I'm learning how to trust my gear, <laughs> trust my equipment, especially since it was uh, gifted to me, you know, used. Yeah. But Yeah, I've been hunting myself, and uh, I, I, I love sitting in the tree stand. You know, I don't, during gun season, I do some hunting, but, you know, on the ground here and there, but I, I just, it's my time of year to just sit and, and watch things, and and sit for three to four or more hours, you know, and that's a long time. But it doesn't doesn't ever seem to drag. Once in a while, it'll drag, mm. but I don't know. Just just always watching things and thinking about things. So sometimes not even thinking about hunting. But there's always that. Also, anything can happen, and you're mm. constantly looking, assessing each sound and sight, and and your eyes. My my eyes actually are very weak in the beginning, but now they're in hunter mode and. Mm. And I can I can concentrate on something for a long long amount of time, but yeah, it's amazing how lazy your eyes get. You know? Yeah, I get that. I mean, you're once you're up there and everything settles into place, you know, things quiet down and your senses pick up and you're, you're squinting your eyes. You're looking off into different areas. And where I was sitting, I'm looking onto a corner of a big field so I can see anything that's kind of coming across there. And I have a uh, other spot where I'm looking at part of a woods. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I always felt I was on the verge of something happening when the wind blows or would blow a leaf or I'd see a leaf flutter down in the distance between the trees and think that was something. So it's, it's probably pretty good for your brain to kind of sit there and have things quiet down and just pick up on these subtle changes. And and I believe you are. I believe yeah. you are on the verge of something all the time. And it kind of starts to infect your, at least for me, your thoughts. You start dreaming of deer and sounds and at night, and then they're the best sound to me in the world, one of, is the sound of footsteps and leaves mm. of a deer coming in. That is just the best. Yeah. It's almost, you know, it's just as good as a waterfall walking up to a pool to go cast you for, for the first time in a trout pool, but um, they're both pretty good. But we got a, we got a full show tonight. It's going to be assessing pesticide hazard and risk glyphosate, a case study with Dan Wickstead. Dan is an extension support specialist with Cornell Cooperative Extension, and he's with the Pesticide Safety Education Program. He trains pesticide applicants, science-based information. Um, they do not advocate for pesticides or make pesticide management recommendations, but uh, we got a full show. Let me see if I can get Dan on. Dan, are you there? Uh, yes, I am. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you just great. How are you doing tonight? Hi. Uh, I'm doing pretty well. <laughs> Where are you calling from, no, Dan? No complaints. Where are you calling from? Uh, I'm at home right now in uh, town of Homer, right near Cortland. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so, yeah, we found out about this through, what is it, the uh, Forest Connect uh, through uh, Peter Smallage there at Cornell? Yes. Yeah, I did a uh, webinar for him back in July, I believe it was. And one and that's of probably where yeah. you're yeah. Yeah, one of Catskill Forest Association's members recommended this to us, and uh, we encourage people to call the Catskill Forest Association if you ever want to recommend a guest. But um, 
I read over, uh, you know, I, I watched the whole presentation. I read over the materials you sent me, and um, you definitely have a different way of assessing risk that, that I haven't heard, and I, and I really enjoyed it. So so let's go over, what are you going to talk about tonight? Okay, well, uh, I'm glad you introduced my program. I just do want to make it clear that our, our job is to train uh, applicators who need to be certified by the state to use pesticides, uh, Many farmers do, but a lot of the commercial applicators who do structural pest control, landscape pest control, that kind of stuff. Um, but for the general public, we provide, as you said, uh, scientific, you know, science-based objective information about pesticides. Uh, we don't advocate for or against pesticides, although there's a lot of times I tell people don't do that. If they're telling me they want to do something, it's not a good idea. Um, but we, we provide information people can use to make their own decisions on whether or not they think a pesticide is appropriate for their situation, and if they do use one, how to use one legally and properly so they get the job done without causing harm to anybody. Um, so my presentation, you talk about, you know, I look at risk differently. It's actually not really different. It's kind of the way you were supposed to look at risk. Um, <laughs> yeah, I and, agree, by the way. It's just yeah, the way okay. we assess risk with other things, right? Yeah, it very much is. So distinction I always make right from the start is hazard versus risk. And hazard, which is also called toxicity, we're talking about a chemical, is simply a measure of the chemical's ability to cause harm. Okay? It, it's just a property of the chemical. It is what it is. So if you're handling a chemical, say a cleaning agent or something that says it's corrosive to eyes, it's going to harm your eyes if it gets in there, you know, plain and simple. Risk, on the other hand, is an estimate of the, of the likelihood that the thing will cause harm. And that depends both on its hazard and your exposure to it. So if you're handling that chemical as close to the eyes and you wear safety goggles or a face shield, you greatly lower your likelihood of harm. You lower your risk, even though you've done nothing to change the chemical. So we look at this as a, an equation, risk equals hazard times exposure. And... I always talk in terms of risk. I never say anything is safe um, because any chemical can harm you at some level of exposure. There's always some hazard involved. So we talk about whether risk is low or risk is high, and that depends on what you're using and how you're using it. So in the case of that you know, a chemical I mentioned, if you're wearing the safety goggles, your risk is pretty low. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what people have a hard time understanding is the difference between can something cause harm, and how likely is it that will cause harm based on the exposures we expect? Well, why do you think that's that's uh, not understood today? Understood, in your opinion? Oh, I just I think it's a failure of the scientific community, including myself, just not getting it out there well enough. Yeah. Uh, I think people who use chemicals on a daily basis know that people even know that in their their daily life. I mean, you know, if you think of parents about a week and a half ago, I uh, got a six-year-old kid. They tell him, okay, you can have one piece of Halloween candy before you go to bed. All is pretty good. If they say, okay, you can spend a half hour, you know, binging on whatever, whatever's in your Halloween bag before you go to bed, you got a whole different situation on hand. You know, one hazard of sugar is it can make kids' uh, activity level go very high, right? <laughs> So they overdose on the sugar, and you have a much different situation than if you just give them one piece of candy for a bed. So we see that 
all over the place. Uh, I always use Tylenol as an example. Uh, if you read the label of Tylenol, if you take too much, it can cause liver damage. So, And uh, the doses you're supposed to take would be high enough to relieve your headache or fever, but too low to really put you at high risk of liver damage. So for, I guess, a way to look at it is like for a particular substance, whether it's Tylenol or sugar, um, the, ha- the hazard or um, ability to cause harm is kind of constant. Yes. Um, and then the risk is based on your exposure, whether it's acute or a chronic exposure over time. And, you know, something could be very highly hazardous, but if you're exposed to it, not um, not for a long period of time or you're wearing proper PPE or whatever, um, the risk can be very low. Right. And a lot of times, yeah, that, that's exactly right. So that's how, that's how we can manage uh, risk is largely by how we manage exposure. But the other thing is the the hazard might not be very high to begin with. Um, you know, the, the chance of something bad happening might not be very high, or it, you know, it might be high. So you have to just manage it. Um, and the thing with glyphosate is people got this confused. So. Uh, going back to my Tylenol example, imagine you have two kids who come down with a fever, two kindergartners, right? And their their parents take them to their respective family doctors, and they both prescribe children's Tylenol. So Jack's mom asked Dr. Smith, can't Tylenol harm Jack's liver? And Dr. Smith says, yes, it can. Jill's mom asked Dr. Jones, is Tylenol likely to harm Jill's liver at that, those doses? And uh, Dr. Jones says it's highly unlikely to. Mm-hmm. So you have one doctor say you can harm the liver, the other one saying it's highly unlikely to. And we accept that because we see they're answering two different questions. No one's no one would accuse either doctor of lying or being incompetent or whatever. And they're both right. They're both right. Mm-hmm. What happened with glyphosate is the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is part of the World Health Organization, listed glyphosate as probably carcinogenic to humans. Uh, largely based on concerns about non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Everyone's heard that all over the news, right? Yeah. What people didn't hear is in the preamble of their document, they said that they assess carcinogenic hazards even when risks are very low at current levels of exposure. They assess hazard. They don't assess risk. Can the chemical... You know, can the chemical cause harm at some level of exposure? That's all they're asking. Whereas what the EPA does is a risk assessment. Hmm. So they listed glyphosate as not likely to be carcinogenic to humans. And it sounds like it's opposite from IARC saying it's probably carcinogenic to humans, but it's hazard versus risk. So EPA looked at, for example, there were studies that glyphosate could harm your DNA, which is sometimes something that could lead to cancer. But the doses required for that to happen were hundreds of times higher than anything anyone would be expected to experience in the real world. Dan, what's IARC so, again stand for? That, that's the International Agency for Research on Cancer. Why do you with think the World Health? It's with the World Health Organization of the of the United Nations. Why do you think they both wouldn't assess risk, though? I they just play different roles. I mean, huh. I. 
the first the first step in assessing risk is assessing hazard. Yeah. At what level of exposure could this cause harm? And then on the risk side, you have to measure, okay, what levels of exposure do we expect? And how does that relate to these levels that could cause harm? It's, it's like saying that we don't do this with anything else, though, right? I mean, driving can, ca- can get – the hazard is death, but the risk is – depends on how you drive. I mean, you can't well, – I mean, it's just like – I don't know. It's not going the full – it's kind of lazy to me, I think, but whatever. So, no, it's the same thing. Your driving is a good example. We, we there are hazards associated with driving. Yeah. Uh, you know, you could you could hit a deer. You could have another car run into you. You can slide off the road. Okay, we accept those hazards usually because we see a benefit in driving, but it depends on the conditions. So right. I, I was talking, I was explaining this to a extension educator who lives in the Tug Hill region of New York State. And I said, if you have a hankering for pizza, you, you know, you're happy to hop in your car and go out of town and get a pizza. But if there's 12 inches of fresh snow on the road and it's still coming down hard, are you going to go get a pizza? And she kind of said, oh, no, She'd, I'd call it for delivery, which I thought was a great risk assessment. Um, so you have to look at what the particular hazard is and what your level of exposure to it is. So the hazard is, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I, I guess I want to go through that again because I think that's a really important distinction. You were saying that IARC was assessing um, just the hazard of it? or did I get, Yes. That it could cause cancer. That they're, so that it's a um, probable human carcinogen is what they, they uh, assess glyphosate right. to be. And that's right. based on it hazard only assessment and then uh the epa uh, assessed it based on risk that full equation we were talking about um and they said it was unlikely to cause cancer so they were doing a risk assessment which is the more i guess more robust way to look at it even though they're more right which one in terms of science communication which uh which one is kind of failing or not living up to uh that full context they're, they're both the same. The hazard mm-hmm. assessment is part of a risk assessment. Since risk equals hazard times exposure, you have to assess the hazard, okay, mm-hmm. and then assess your level of exposure to it. And is your level of exposure high enough for that potential harm to actually happen? Again, with Tylenol, it can damage your liver. But the label tells you if you take the prescribed doses, your risk of liver damage is very low. If you take too much, then your risk of liver damage is high. So IARC and EPA could both very well be right. I, I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not going to debate either one of them. Yeah. They're assessing two parts of the same of the uh, issue. You have to assess hazard. Well, it's a good segue. And then you have to look at. Yeah. Then you have to look at what the potential exposure is to see if that hazard is actually going to happen. Well, that's a good segue into the next part of your outline, um, which is people are saying, well, what's the exposure? And that's, you know, the um, the, the residue in food, right? I mean, so example of glyphosate residues in food. Can you discuss that? Um, yeah. So uh, glyphosate products can be used on a lot of crops, uh, sometimes during the growing season, sometimes before. But there's always a chance if you use a pesticide on a crop that there could be residues left in it. Um, and so 
the FDA will set tolerances, how much residue can remain on a crop at the time of harvest. And it's usually measured in, you know, parts per million or something. Because, uh, you know, if you use the pesticide, there's very good chance there's going to be something left on it. And then if you go over that, you know, if, EPA, if the FDA samples a crop and it exceeds tolerance, they're not going to let it go into the food chain. They're going to seize the crop. Um, so if a, the crop has a tolerance. So you use glyphosate, there's going to be some residue on the crop. How much? has to be low enough by law. Uh, this is part of the Food Quality Protection Act. That the amount of residue you can be exposed to in food has to be low enough to pose a reasonable certainty of no harm. Okay? And so glyphosate can be used on a number of crops. It means it can be on a number of the things you eat. So they have to look at your cumulative exposure. Not just how much is in the corn, not just how much might be in another food you're going to eat. But what's the total amount you could be exposed to on a daily basis over your lifetime? And they use um, animal studies to find out at what level bad things might start to happen. And they have to make sure we're well below that level. And so, again, you have to do the hazard assessment. by using these animal studies. At what level can harm, you know, daily exposure cause harm to test animals? And what EPA does, they calculate the highest dose at which no harm happened. Okay, and for glyphosate, that was 100 milligrams per kilogram of body weight per day. Uh, animals exposed at that level, nothing bad happened to them. But we're not test animals, so EPA reduces that by tenfold, assuming we're going to be more sensitive to the chemical. They're playing worst case scenario, and then we know that different people, you know, people react to chemicals differently. So they reduce that another tenfold. And then if there's any evidence showing that uh, the chemical is especially problematic for children, for example, if they're seeing any prenatal effects or developmental effects in the test animals, they can reduce it another tenfold. Uh, with glyphosate, they didn't see that. So they take that original 100 milligrams per kilogram of, of body weight per day and reduce it by a combined safety factor of 100, which comes out in this case, a very convenient, easy to remember number, one milligram per kilogram body weight per day. If you're exposed to that on a daily basis over your lifetime, right now to the best of our knowledge, you should be fine. There's very, there's very low risk of anything happening. Again, because that's set by law, you have to have reasonable certainty of no harm. And so, in my case, you know, because it's per milligram per day, you know, per milligram of body, or per kilogram of body weight, my daily reference dose for glyphosate is 75 milligrams, which is really just like one four hundredth of an ounce. is not much. And I calculated a recommended diet for a person of my age and activity level. And if everything I ate had the maximum amount of glyphosate allowed by law, I'd only come to about 10% of my, uh, maybe 15% of my um, reference dose. I wouldn't reach, come anywhere close to the amount that should be no problem. And that amount, again, is 100 times lower than the level that didn't cause any problem in test animals. So EPA is always looking at this data. Um, they're also looking at other exposures uh, that you can have, and they're 
the main thing I like to emphasize is they focus on kids. So they actually calculate if a child is in an ex- a treated area, say on turf that's been treated with glyphosate, a toddler, one to two years old, crawling around, eating the grass, maybe eating dirt, putting toys in their mouth, what's their level of exposure to make sure that still comes below that maximum dose I talked about? And if it, if we get too close, if what you're expected to be exposed to gets, you know, too close to that maximum dose, then EPA will step in. They'll cancel some uses. They'll require reduced rates, um, all sorts of things. And that's what they're constantly looking at. So are those findings, that knowledge that they that they get from those studies, those um, go back to uh, basically the, the dosage rates the, that are on the label that you have to follow by law? Or, yes. Or is that largely just... I mean, when you read a label like that, you just get the sense that they're telling you, um, you know, what what is enough to kill the plant. It doesn't factor in what they're kind of uh, limiting at the um, harvesting end of things. Well, they have to look at it both ways. So what they're going to do is they say, okay, this this rate that's being proposed. So if I got a pesticide manufacturer and say, I want to get this product registered to use at say, one pint per acre, okay? They're going to look at how much is going to be left in the crop at the time of harvest. If that's higher than what would be allowed, they're going to say, you can't do that. You're going to have to reduce the rate. If they look at it and say, okay, it's going to be within the accepted tolerance, but there's all these other exposures people could have, so this added exposure is going to end up exceeding the maximum exposure we can have, they're going to deny the application. So it's kind of both ways. The the labeled rate is set in a way that tolerance is not going to be exceeded mm-hmm. and that your cumulative exposure won't be exceeded. If it is, they're just not going to allow the use. How do uh, inert materials or surfactants or whatnot uh, factor into it? Uh, they pretty much go through a very similar process. Yeah. Um, every any every uh, inert ingredient used in a pesticide product has to be approved by EPA, and it also goes through testing to see what effects it could have on people, what effects on the environment. Um, they either have to have tolerances. Sometimes they can be exempt from tolerance if they're if they're not seeing any, you know, significant uh, hazards. But yeah, they, they go along too. Everything is everything that's put in a pesticide product has to be cleared by EPA. It's got to be a long process, I would assume. It is. It, it takes. It can be sometimes a couple of decades to get a product to market after the company first finds, oh look, this seems to work. Wow. Really? And then once then what? Yeah, then once an active ingredient like glyphosate is approved and it's put into products, every fifteen years, it goes through a registration review. Um, and it takes almost the full 15 years to look at, have we learned anything, you know, now that's being used out there in the marketplace? Are we seeing any issues we didn't expect? Is it being used more than we thought it was? Um, do we need to reduce rates, reduce uses, increase the amount of PPE people have to use? And that's by law, again, every 15 years, it's got to go through that process. 
So needless to say, I mean, these are very uh, intensely studied substances. You know, there's not anybody being careless in terms of their manufacture and their formulation and uh, the information around them. So it should be, you know, it should be, you know, clear to people their relative uh, uh, hazard. Um, But it always seems to me that people have uh, uh, a misunderstanding of, of these things. And I think it comes back to that equating hazard with risk and being confused about whether you know it does cause cancer or is unlikely to and um it just doesn't seem to clear up a lot of the misunderstandings people have but i guess that's where where you come in yeah and there's not a lot of people talking about this i've been asked to give this talk over 50 times because i'm one of the few people who's actually trying to make this distinction just because something can cause a problem doesn't mean it will cause a problem and that's, that goes to our expected levels of exposure. Um, we, we do, like I said, we do this in our daily, day, our daily lives. We limit, you know, if you're smart about it, you're going to limit how much alcohol you drink, right? You're going to limit how much sugar you let your kids have. You're going to, you know, if you have a cold, you're going to go to a store, you're going to read the label and say, how much do I need to take? Mm-hmm. Right? And you're not going to go above that. So even though the label says, you know, if you take too much, this bad thing can happen. You're saying, okay, well, I'll just take what's what's required. So we do that in our daily lives. I think with pesticides, um, gotten. I think one of the issues is a control issue. Okay, if I'm taking Tylenol, I'm taking Tylenol. If uh, out of my choice. I'm not necessarily choosing to have pesticide residues in my food, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so that control issue goes into how people view risk. And the less control you have over something, the more concerned you are about it. Um, and plus, I think it's just a, again, it goes back to the folks like me, you have to get out there and, and talk about this more. I hear a lot of people saying, um, you know, okay, so you tell me all this stuff about glyphosate, but kids can be exposed to it, and kids are smaller, and they, they eat more per body weight, and they breathe more per body volume and all that stuff. And I tell them, I go, yes, I know that, and EPA knows that, too. That's why they take that into account when they're looking at how much we can be exposed to, and that surprises people. They don't think EPA is taking children into account when they're doing this kind of stuff, yet... They're not surprised to find that if you're going to give Tylenol to your kid, you give them children's Tylenol, not adult Tylenol. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. They, they know the FDA and the drug manufacturers are looking at that, but they're surprised to find out EPA is. And I just think it's a, a communication issue and something I'm, I'm really trying hard to address uh, by going out giving these talks and I mean, just explaining yeah. the difference to people. There's confusion out there. From, you know, if you're... Just listening to this, you might be thinking, well, what about that California case, right? I mean, mm-hmm. didn't it come out that it causes cancer? So, you know, what would you say to that? My first response to that is that's a jury trial. It's not a scientific finding. So I don't know what was presented to the jury, whether they were talking about hazard versus risk or if they were just told that, well, if it's a probable carcinogen, shouldn't someone have been told about that? Shouldn't they have been warned about it? Um, but 
if the risk assessment is it's not likely to cause cancer when used according to label directions, that doesn't, you know, anything about cancer wouldn't go on the label uh, because it's the label is talking about, you know, what you can expect to happen if you're using the product. Um, so I don't know what evidence they saw. I don't know what level they were asked, you know, could it possibly contribute to the cancer or did it cause the cancer? I'm not sure what those levels were, but I think the main thing I go back to is those aren't, those aren't scientific agencies. I mean, the EPA, the European Food Safety Administration, uh, and the regulatory agencies in Canada, Japan, Brazil, New Zealand, Australia have all come to the same conclusion. And all after the IARC report came out saying that glyphosate is unlikely to be, you know, to cause cancer when used according to label directions, so we have expected levels of exposure. You know, I don't know, have you heard about the aspartame thing going on recently? No, mm-hmm. no. I haven't, have you? Okay. Yeah, I've heard of that kind it, of uh, hysteria around that, but... I... Yeah, it's, a, it's an artificial sweetener. It's in all sorts of diet sodas and everything, right? So, the International Agency for Research on Cancer... Uh, just this past month listed it as a possible human carcinogen. And they were very careful to make sure they, the announcement came out the same day that a sister agency with the World Health Organization, um, I keep forgetting its name, it's the, um, I'll get here, the Joint Expert Committee on Food Additives that assesses risk, came out the very same day and said, uh, the allowed levels of exposure to aspartame, how much you could be exposed on a daily basis, is still well low enough that we don't have to worry about it. Okay? Mm-hmm. The exact same thing that happened with glyphosate. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And yet when it came out, you have the food industry saying that IARC relied on junk science. We have at least one advocacy group saying it's sister agency, this one that said, you know, we don't have to worry about the risk, uh, accused them of having ties to industry. And then an article in the Washington Post said the seemingly opposing announcements by these two agencies is certain to intensify, intensify questions about the safety of aspartame. They were not opposing announcements. One said, one made a hazard assessment. It's a possible carcinogen. And the other one made a risk assessment. The level we're exposed to, we don't see as a risk of cancer. Again, would it be too much to ask, though, for them to say that, okay, we just didn't assess the risk? <laughs> you know what I mean? By after they saying did. that it's hazardous? Oh, they did. Okay. They, they did. I mean, right. they, they, they said it straight out in the glyphosate document, too. And yeah. when uh, Aaron Blair, who is the chair of the... IARC committee that made the decision about glyphosate. Uh, he was with the National Cancer Institute studying pesticides and cancer for over 40 years. He was interviewed, interviewed by NPR, and he said flat out, we don't assess risk. We assess hazard. We provide information to the regulatory agencies who then determine are there steps that need to be taken to reduce exposure or is exposure levels already low enough? Mm-hmm. So these agencies, are they are coming flat out and saying it. But even when but, they when, when they do, they still perpetuate this confusion. I'm not saying it's solely their fault, but I guess if you have one chance as like an institution, 
how would you communicate this effectively? What kind? How would you? What would you lead with to kind of reduce confusion, or is it just inevitable that people will uh, read whatever they want to read into it? I think it's almost inevitable. It, it takes a, it takes a little bit of work. Yeah. Um, you have to be. The biggest thing is not to say the wrong thing. Don't say anything is safe. Right. Uh, that implies zero risk, and people let their guard down. You never say anything is safe. Um, don't attack one agency or the other. You know, the food industry would have been much smarter coming out. IREC made this determination, but their sister agency said that the levels we're exposed to aren't going to cause a problem. So that's good. Our levels are already low enough that even if they find out it could cause cancer, right now it's just possible. Even if they find out, yeah, this, this is probably something that could cause cancer, our levels are low enough that we're fine. Mm. Now, the thing is with risk is very personal. And so some people like me say, okay, I'm good with that. Uh, other people are going to say, oh, I don't know because... Again, I don't have control over what they put in my diet soda. I only have control over whether or not I drink it, so I'm, I'm just going to stop drinking it. Some mm -hmm. people are going to go that way. But you also have money involved uh, on both sides of the issue, and that gets in the way. And you have... The media does not report these things well. I mean, just, even the Washington Post saying these opposing announcements... Even though the agencies came out on the same day and made it very clear we're not making opposing announcements, it just kind of gets perpetuated. So it's tough. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying it's easy, and it's something I've been yeah. working on for years. Makes I mean, sense. obviously, it took you a little bit to to really see the difference between hazard and you asked me earlier, you know, well, which one is more right? They're both perfectly right. And I, I mean, I've been like the two doctors were perfectly right. I talked to the two doctors, talked about the parents, the kids. Yeah. They were perfectly right in their answers i mean uh, after reading your presentation and stuff um you know we're, we're pesticide applicators and all too yeah. often we'll, we'll hear that you know pesticides should be used as a last resort and we're going to talk about that next um if you're just tuning okay in uh tonight's show is assessing pesticide hazard and risk glyphosate a case study with dan wickstead up next we're going to ask dan about considering alternatives to glyphosate
you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m., talk about a different forest-related topic. Tonight's topic is assessing pesticide hazard and risk glyphosate, a case study with Dan Wickstead. He's from the Cornell Cooperative Extension Pesticide Safety Education Program. So, Dan, considering alternatives to glyphosate. Okay. Uh, first, can I make one last statement about the, the risk issue? Absolutely. Um, you talked about like residues in food. We have there's always uncertainty in what we know. Okay, we we can't know everything. Uh, so the, the the process EPA goes through uh, make sure that our actual level of exposure is much lower than a level we expect would cause harm, based on what we know. So that if we learn something different, say no, you know, this level might actually cause harm. The odds are we're still well below that okay um i want i just want to make that clear there's a lot of uncertainty so they they take that into account that's why they put in those safety factors i talked about uh to make sure our, our level of exposure is lower than anything we think could cause harm then we find something that no we're, we're too close to that then they'll take other steps to make sure our level you know goes lower so okay so makes sense you want to talk about alternatives uh, any particular question or well um yeah what the efficacy safety of using alternatives i i thought and how it relates to integrated pest management because i've gone to many conferences and you know the the lead instructor will say well you know pesticides use as a last resort what would you what would you say i always cringe when i hear that <laughs> and not because not because i'm trying to defend pesticides don't get me wrong right uh, you guys are hunters, right? Yes. Uh, are you worried about ticks when you go out in the woods? Sure. Sure. Do you ever use Do you ever use repellents or permethrin-created clothing? I I can say I've never done that. <laughs> you haven't done. Okay. Yeah. Not because I'm against them either. It's just I uh, God. There's so many ticks. I don't know. How, I've given up. I'm a bad example uh, again. All right. Yeah. Okay. Well, a lot of people do that. They'll use you know if you're sitting outside in your back porch on a summer night, you'll put on repellent so you don't get bit by mosquitoes. You know, um, when we have new invasive species coming in, you know, we might have to resort to pesticides to use them, you know, to control them as best we can. Certainly during the pandemic, people are using disinfectants mm. a lot, right? And disinfectants for pesticides. So the what IPM strives to do there's a lot of different definitions of it out there, but it always comes down to two things. You want to keep the pest at a manageable level, not necessarily eradicate. depends on the situation. You always have to eradicate the pest, but you want to manage the pest at an acceptable level in a way that poses the least risk to people in the environment. Okay? So sometimes that involves using a pesticide. And if we say use pesticides as a last resort, that means people are going to try to avoid it at all costs. And in doing so, they're either not going to control the pest or they're going to put themselves at greater risk. Because anything we do to control pests, even non-chemical options, present hazards and you know can lead to harm. So, yeah, use it as a last resort. That just doesn't work. It's... Pesticides can be part of an IPM program, and you use them just like you would anything else. Use them at the right time in the right way. Right. 
do you think we fairly assess the hazard and risk of non-chemicals, like mechanical, say a chainsaw? or We use a lot of chainsaws um, at Catskill Forest Association. Yeah, I can imagine. And in some cases, yes. Like with chainsaws, if you, if you buy a chainsaw and you get a manual with it, what, the first two or three pages are telling you all the bad things that can happen and all the things you have <laughs> yeah. to do to not make that happen, right? Right. The trick comes in when people are putting together a fact sheet and, you know, giving recommendations how to control a pest. It will include the hazards associated with the pesticide and all that stuff. But then they'll say, you know, an alternative is you could use a string trimmer. And they won't talk about the hazards associated with string trimmers, even though your manual is full of them. Mm. And, you know, it, it just it strikes me as odd, but that's just the way it happens. So we know the hazards that chainsaws and string trimmers can do. But we've gotten to the point where whenever we talk about pest management, we only t- we generally only talk about hazards associated with pesticides. And so people get the idea that anything they do that's not pesticide-related is going to be safer. Hmm. And um, so, for example, if you need to cut down a maple tree and you just leave it, you cut it and you leave the stump there, it's going to re-sprout like crazy, right? And so you come back with a chainsaw and cut the sprouts. Then it re-sprouts again. You come back with a chainsaw and you recut the sprouts. So every time you use that chainsaw, you put yourself at risk of, you know, harm from the chain, the chain itself. Uh, you, you need to wear hearing protection, obviously, because of the loud noise. You're breathing in the exhaust, and gasoline exhaust is a possible human carcinogen. Um, all sorts of things. In fact, uh, chainsaws and slipping and falling are the two main causes of the hospital visits in the silviculture industry. So an alternative is to use glyphosate. You cut the tree and you spray, you spray the surface of the stump and the sides of it with glyphosate and it goes down and it kills the root system so you don't get re-sprouts. You never have to go back and cut it again and again and again. So if, you, if I were to do that, if I were to look at the comparative risks of those two approaches i would think the chemical approach is poses less risk um and you know sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't but if if the goal of ipm is to manage the pest in a way that poses least risk you have to assess the risk of every option you're using to make sure what combination will manage the pest with the least risk. You can't ignore the risk from all these other factors. Um, an example is what recently is, in some cases, highway departments have been asked to use string trimmers around guardrails instead of herbicides to control. You can't really mow very effectively around a guardrail. Uh, so your options are to use chemical or mechanical control. I mean, use chemical control, you can often do it from a truck that goes down the road and just gets to that guardrail and sprays the guardrail and moves on. If you're doing mechanical, you have to have people on the shoulder 
which means you're putting them at risk of being struck by vehicles. Uh, the alternative to that is to do the lane shifts that you see a lot of times. You know, road work ahead, everyone has to right lane close, move to the left lane. Those lane shifts change the traffic patterns and increase the risk of motor vehicle accidents because people are changing lanes, they're, slow, they're changing speeds. And so even aside from the person on the side of the road, there's an increased risk of car accidents. Uh, string trimmers can throw rocks 50 feet. One township had an issue where it threw a rock through the windshield of an oncoming car. Hmm. And plus you have all these risks to the person using it that we talked about, you know, somewhat similar to chainsaws. So I actually had one person from a, a highway department tell me that worker safety was their main reason for having an herbicide, a roadside herbicide program. But because the general public is always seeing these fact sheets and these things in the newspaper about how to control a pest, and the only possible bad side effect they're seeing is when you're talking about pesticides, they get this assumption that everything else is for. Mm. And that can lead them to advocate something that's demonstrably less, you know, more risky. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me... It- becoming more and more apparent that you know glyphosate um it just has the kiss of death um is there other herbicides that you think people are using at all as an alternative that are less um i guess infamous as glyphosate <laughs> um just to get no, the I, think, heat I, think it's the most, I think it's the most infamous one out there right now uh that's what i'm saying yeah true. we've used like triclopyr that's a herbicide that pretty much has the mm-hmm. same uh, uh, control as a glyphosate, but, you know, not many people know about it. It doesn't have a lot of baggage attached to it, but um, I don't know. I don't know if there's going to be a, you know, a move away from glyphosate as, as uh, uh, you know, a primary well, herbicide, but... Yeah, people are are pushing that, you know, because they don't quite grasp this hazard versus risk thing. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned triclopyr, okay? So if you compare a common triclopyr product that's used in the landscape versus a common Roundup, you know, glyphosate product that's used in the landscape, uh, and you look at the label, the label indicate there's a greater hazard from oral exposure to triclopyr, there's a greater hazard to non-target animals, and a greater hazard uh, with respect to groundwater or surface water contamination. Okay? Mm-hmm. So the label is telling you it poses more hazard than glyphosate. Now, both products will have met EPA's standard that when used according to label directions, they won't cause unreasonable adverse effects to people in the environment. So I'm not saying anything against the triclopyr product. But as an applicator, you might think, well, things go wrong. A hose might burst. It might be a spill. I might forget to put on my gloves, you know, take a quick take a quick break and come back and start spraying again and forget to put my gloves on or my, my goggles. And so that's something applicators look at. If they have two products that are both going to do the job equally well, they'll start thinking, okay, if something goes wrong, which one would I rather not have in the tank? And so that's something you consider you look at, you know, chemical alternatives as well. Well, yeah, I mean, you can imagine a scenario where, you know, uh, uh, say, 
person is a, a commercial applicator and they're spraying for a customer and they don't want them spraying with glyphosate. They feel that the risk is too high, so they're switching to triclopyr, and that's more risk on the, the applicator. Um, well, the hazard, again, the hazard is higher. Right, right, right. If the applicator is using according to label directions, it still met that standard of posing no unreasonable risk to people in the environment. Okay? It's still, so even though the hazard is higher, maybe the PPE requirements are higher, maybe there's this thing saying don't apply it within so many feet of a stream, you know, that kind of stuff. And you, you heed those precautions, the risk is still low. So you can't say the risk is higher. The risk right. is depending on how you actually use it. And if you use it according to label directions, the risk is still going to be low. But, yeah, a customer might say, you know, don't use this product. And a company is going to abide by that uh, if, unless it won't control the pest. And a company might say, well, I'm just not going to be your provider anymore because you're asking me to do something that won't control the pest, and I just can't do that. Um, but yeah, so, again, keep in mind, the hazard can be higher, but the risk isn't necessarily higher if you use it properly. Right, yeah. Whereas if something is the hazard is lower, but you use it badly, you're increasing your risk. Hey, Dan, we got about three minutes left. Um, okay. We, we, and we, we went through... Um, you know, everything we want to really cover, but we have some time left. What about this NIH agricultural health study that tracked applicators and their spouse in two states? Well, do, you want, do you want to talk about that for three, two minutes? Yeah. It's been run by the National Institute of Health since 1993, and they're tracking, I think it's been 50,000 uh, applicators, both on the, you know, the farm side and the commercial application side, as well as, I think, 30,000 spouses. And they're tracking the applicator's pesticide use and exposure over that time and running studies to see, are we seeing any adverse effects? They, they can trace back to a given you know, pesticide or pesticide use pattern. And, for example, two studies have come out of that looking to see if there's any uh, increased incidence of non-Hodgkin lymphoma or other cancers by applicators who are using glyphosate. One of them was co-authored by Dr. Blair, who was the chair of the IART committee I mentioned before. And both those studies have found no association between glyphosate use and cancer development. So that's something EPA looked at when they came to their you know, decision about not likely to be carcinogenic. And it's not just a, an off-the-cuff determination. Things have to meet certain criteria for them to come to that. Uh, decision. So, yeah, that's a really rigorous study. They're putting out all sorts of studies. They're looking at not just at cancer, they're looking at, um, you know, Lou Gehrig's disease. They're looking at, uh, does it affect, if you have, a, you know, diabetes, is exposure to this pesticide causing any more problems? Things like all sorts of health issues they're looking at. It's a really rigorous study, been going on for years. And um, I think it's very informative. Yeah, so it's worth looking up for people who are curious yeah. about it. Well, yeah, Dan, the Agricultural yeah. Health Study. Yep. Dan, thank you for coming on tonight. We're all out of time. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on from the forest. Okay, thank you. And if people have any questions, they can, again, just look up the Pesticide Safety Education Program at Cornell, and they can reach out to us for any kind of questions they have. Okay. Have a good night, Dan. Thanks. You too.
Bye. All right, bye. If you missed the show, that was uh, Dan Wickstead from uh, Cornell Cooperative Extension Pesticide Safety Education Program, and we were talking about uh, assessing pesticide hazard and risk, glyphosate, a case study. And uh, good show. Yeah, don't you know, equate them. Very interesting to uh, define hazard and risk, okay? That's yeah, an important distinction. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's right. But um, next week is uh, Mr. Mead, Mr. Gary Mead, and uh, we will see you then, and have a good night. Good night, everyone. All right, take care. Oh, the neon lights were flashing and the icy wind did blow. The water seeped into his shoes and the drizzle turned to snow. His eyes were red, his hopes were dead, and the wine was running low. Then the old man came home from the forest. His tears fell on the sidewalk as he stumbled in the street. A dozen faces stopped to stare, but no one stopped to speak. His castle was a hallway and the bottle was his friend And the old man stumbled in from the forest Up a dark and dingy staircase the old man made his way His ragged coat around him as upon his cot he lay So dear, who'd loved him in the springtime of a long forgotten year, when the wildflowers did bloom in the forest. She touched his grizzled fingers and she called him by his name, and then he heard the joyful sound of children at the game. Come home.